0: So the Ten Commandments. Most people have heard of the Ten Commandments. Most people can't give you all ten. If I gave you a little test today, uh, some of you might pass. I think if we worked together, we'd be able to get through all Ten Commandments. But we're familiar with the term. And through history, they've been in public government buildings, not so much anymore, uh, schools, hospitals, and in people's homes. So we're familiar with what God says. What is the relevance and importance of it today? And I think that's, we we need to see that from scriptures. We're reading through the life of Moses and we're talking about relationship. What do the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God today? Do they guide us along? Do they show us the way? Is it the standard by which we live? Those are all good questions. So in this giving of the Ten Commandments that God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai, here's the setting. We're on the Arabian Peninsula, and Moses is leading the children of Israel between two and three million people from bondage in Egypt to the Promised Land. And along the way, the greatest objective that God has for His people is not getting them to the destination of the promised land the place but getting them to a relationship with the person and the same with you it's not about just getting somewhere but god working in your heart to bring you to where you need to be an intimate and meaningful relationship with him that's our passion and our desire here at valley <clears throat> so mount sinai It's also called Mount Horeb, and uh, it's called the Mountain of God. We will find later on Elijah fleeing there and and having uh, uh, interaction with God as he is is running on the run, God showing his mercy to him. We also see this as uh, the very place that Moses was at the burning bush and came to know God, the I Am or the self-existent one. So we we covered that in chapter three. So this is the place, and God for the first time is going to give his people a written revelation. A written revelation. Before God would speak uh, with an audible voice, he would perform miracles, but here he is giving written revelation. And we believe that God's written revelation is absolute truth. Now, that's hard for a lot of people to process, to say, you can't have absolute truth. And so I always like to ask, is that absolutely true, that you can't have absolute truth? Um, Why do we say that? Because God declares it. His word is truth. Not just contains truth, there's a difference. My word is truth truth he also says every word of God proves out to be true so that's quite a statement that every word is true absolute truth and today as people struggle with that they create what we call relative truth or my truth that's my truth that's your truth how do we know the truth and I think particularly in our country over the last several years, we've struggled to believe what anyone is saying on television. We go through the politics, we went through COVID, and you think, "How can you trust what anyone says if it's true?" You go to the store and um, they list the size on things. You know? Um, now, this is these are Levi jeans. I've been wearing them since I was a little kid. And would you believe that I'm wearing the exact same size as I wore in high school? How many of you believe that? I didn't say I am the same size I was in high school, Uh, but I am wearing the same size on on the back. And the Levi's, you know, they put on the back your waist and the length. That's why we wear our shirts out. Um, So, But when I was in high school, I had 34 waist, 34 length. That's what I'm wearing today. But I am not the same size. <laughs> if you see pictures of me in high school, in fact, I was telling to "Size, you can't say that. That's not true, because I remember how you looked in high school. But there's always a fine print and, and, and they put in there. But you think, what are they trying to do? They're, they're trying to make little boys Feel like big men back in the day, so they were shrink to fit. Same size, shrink to fit. Now they're thinking of big men trying to feel a little slimmer, so what do they put on stretch? Now I noticed this, that if I go buy, if I go buy a pair of jeans that don't say stretch on them, it's gonna be miserable. And, and and there is nothing worse than wearing blue jeans that are don't fit you. But hey, I could say 34-34, same 34-34, but it is not the same. So as a believer, and I think for anyone, we want to know the truth, the exact measurement. And who decides what is true? And I think you have to come to the place where you decide, am I gonna believe that, you know, God claims that this is truth, and it seems true, because it's proven out there's, there are a lot of things we don't understand, granted, but he consistently proves out things to be true. And so this is the first written record of absolute truth. It is not all of it. Um, When you think of the Ten Commandments, actually Ten Commandments isn't used. We refer to them as Ten Commandments. Literally, um, it's ten words. Now there are more than one words, but that's what it says, or the Decalogue, the Deca-ten, word logos, um, the ten words. And written on two tablets, and maybe joined together, or two separate tablets. I think, from what I can understand, that it was like a covenant. The reason you have two tablets is you have all ten on one side, all ten on the other side. And so this is what God is making a covenant relationship with his people with these laws. So when you hear the the term, the law of God, or the word of God, you could refer to all of scripture, people do that, I refer to as the law of God or the word of God, we read in Psalm 19 that I shared last week in Psalm 119, just completely talking about all that the word is and describing it. The Pentateuch, some refer to as the law as the first five books that Moses wrote. Um, actually, if you, you count up all the laws in the scripture, they had to follow 613. 613 laws. And they're broken down into categories, three categories. So the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. We refer to as the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, the Decalogue. Um, That's the most familiar. But you also had what we call civil law. And from chapter 21 to 24, um, he covers civil law. In other words, how how do the people, are they governed? uh, Be the same as like in Lafayette or in Colorado. These are the civil laws. And then the last section of law from chapters 25 to 31 are the ceremonial laws or religious laws. So of the 613, you have moral laws, which we are most familiar with, civil laws and ceremonial laws. And if you look at the 10, uh, the 10 commandments, we could divide them into two. Um, Vertical, they have to do with God, and horizontal, have to do with each other. So the first four, Uh, No other gods before me, no idols. Don't take my name in vain and keep the Sabbath. Those all have to do with God, our relationship with God. And then with each other, he says, honor your father and mother. Do not murder, commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness or lie, and do not covet. Those all have to do with others. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus sums them up. Do you remember in the New Testament, uh, when, when he was asked the question, what is the greatest law? And he said, here it is, to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. He said, the second law is like unto it. So he divides them up, first and second, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you can hang all the law and all the prophets, which, which follows uh, the, the Pentateuch, hang all of this on the same. So when you think about how God forms us, you think, that is amazing how Christ brings that all together. And what he says, uh, what we call the, great command, the greatest commandments. But actually, we see that happen already in the Old Testament. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says this. Hear, O Israel: The Lord our God is one. He says, "You shall love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength." So you have that there. And then in Leviticus 19:18, he says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." So these are old te- These aren't just New Testament teachings. These are Old Testament teachings. And one of the beautiful things about the Scriptures, we don't just have like Old Testament, New Testament. This is law and this is grace, and they're totally different. And we get through. We don't like doing the Old Testament. Um, because that's totally different. Everything's new in the New No, it's one fluid story. And you see in in, in seed form in, in the Old Testament just come to full bloom in the New Testament. And so this is what Jesus does. He brings that all together. And it's interesting that even the Jews knew this. So as we look at this passage today, um, it's gonna to tell us what we need to know. I. I'm excited about sharing this because I think, what do we need to know? Um, We need to know about God. We need to know about you. And we need to know about Jesus Christ. And so 10 words about God. I think 10 words about you and me. And 10 words about Christ. So 10 words about God. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? It's the most important thing about you. I I quote uh, A.W. Tozer. But let's read the text. And, And as I read this, I want you to think through what quality, characteristic, attribute about God first comes to your mind when I read this. Exodus 19 and verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Whew. I mean, doesn't it kind of, you get the sense of awe, the fire coming down from heaven and the whole mountain shaking? God is Holy. He is not holy in the Old Testament and not holy in the New Testament. He is holy. It is the first and foremost attribute of God, and it ties everything together. On this same mountain, he learned who the I Am was. We also see him as creator, sustainer, judge of all the earth. He is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipresent. He is good, patient, kind, merciful, slow to wrath, and forgiving. All these are in the Old Testament. He's all of that. But he's holy. And holy really is the idea, it it is uh, transcendent and translated means totally other. Totally other. You know, he transcends all things. We know that he dwells in unapproachable light. He is perfect in all that he does. He has no flaw, and we stand in awe of him. I think we have lost a sense in our day and in our culture, we have lost a sense of awe for the holiness of God. It is not the fear that makes you want to run from God, but the kind of fear that makes you want to run to him. But when we don't have a reverence for the holiness of God, his perfection, and and you you think he dwells in unapproachable light, if we cannot see him that way, it's hard for us to appreciate anything else about him. All of his goodness and kindness and love expressed to us supremely, he is holy. And he has never become less holy. Everything he has been, he always will be, and we worship him in holiness. Today, we like to focus on his goodness, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I I often say, if, if people could only understand the love of God. But his goodness is not apart from his holiness. In fact, really, God cannot be good unless he's holy. Think about that. If God is not holy, how can he be good? If there's sin, flaw, imperfection, lies, deceit, how can he be good? So before God is ever good, we see him as holy. Now I realize we don't rank order and put things in more importance, but I, but I don't think we can see the goodness of God until we first recognize his holiness. Jeremiah, the prophet says, "'Will you not fear me?' says the Lord." Will you not tremble at my presence? Now, he's speaking to those he loves. He said, won't you tremble at my presence? Will you not fear me? Won't you have a reverential awe with me? Because out of that, we begin to see how his goodness flows. That's where we start. We start with God, not with you. (laughs) You know, most people go to church because it's all about me and what I can get, what I can sing, what I can learn, what I can do, what is good for my kids. It's not about you. It's about God. Now we'll get to you at point number two. But unless unless you come here, we come here to stand in awe of Him. We come to worship Him in the beauty of His holiness and come before his presence with singing to recognize he is the transcendent, holy God. Fire coming down from heaven, the whole mountain of God shaking. So once we establish that, we move to the second point. Ten words about you. <laughs> because we do relate to this. What are the ten words about you? These ten words, words, commandments, and we would sum those up in verse 21 of Exodus 19, and see if you can pick up on what this might be. And the Lord said to Moses, go down from the mountain, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. So here's what he said, I'm on the mountain, God is on his holy mountain. He allows Moses to come up, to give him the 10 words. And he says, go down and make sure they don't come into my presence because if they do, they'll perish. Why would they perish? Because God is holy and you are not. (laughs) And nothing can survive in his presence if it's not holy. So when, when you stand in awe of His holiness, the first thing you recognize, I am not, I am unclean, I have sinned, I am imperfect. And if you have trouble seeing that, you have real trouble. (laughs) Most of us know what we call the agony of humanity, of sinful flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 1, here's what the Lord says. He says, be holy. This is God's standard for you. And, and, and really, it's gonna leave you feeling like, that's impossible, okay? Be holy, for I am holy. So if God is holy and dwells in holiness and everything around him is holy and you are not, the only way you can come into his presence and enjoy a relationship is if you are holy. Be holy. Now he's commanding that to make you stop and think. He knows you can't make yourself holy. It's it's like you're so permeated with sinfulness and fallenness. There's nothing you can do to make yourself holy when you're completely unholy. And then Jesus gives the standard in the Sermon on the Mount. We went through this a number of months ago. Be perfect. Be perfect. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We throw that word around a lot, don't we? If you you go to a restaurant and they always say, perfect, perfect, perfect. Can I get that? Perfect. (laughs) Perfect means without flaw. So sin came into the world. Adam. By choice, knowing what he was doing, Eve was deceived, Adam made a conscious choice to rebel against God. And sin enters into the human race. You can blame it. You know, he blamed it on his wife. Um, she blamed it on the devil. Um, devil made me do it. I mean, the thing is, it plunged the entire human race into sin. So everything is now fallen because of that. You say, "Thanks a lot, great, 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 great grandpa," <clears throat> and we inherited that. We inherit a lot of things. We inherit sinfulness. There's two ways really that you become a sinner. One is you inherited it all the way back to Adam. It's just been in every every descendant. If you do the you'll find out sin goes all the way to you, okay? And then you're also a sinner by the choices you make. I mean, you choose to sin every day. You say, well, I don't think I've sinned in a while. Um, so we'll bring in some witnesses here for you. What is sin? How do you define Sin. Anything less than perfect, anything less than the perfect holiness of God, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says it's not just if you murder someone, if you're angry with them, you've committed sin. And not just if you commit adultery, if you lust after a woman, you've sinned. So he takes this to what it's always meant, to the heart, it's a heart issue, If you love the Lord with all your heart, those first four commandments, you're going to follow. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to dishonor your mother and father. I mean, this is what it gets down to the deeper motive. And so we have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. And James, the pastor in Jerusalem, and he writes in the book of James, he says, if we offend the holy God, at one point, one, 613 laws, one point, we offend. We're guilty of all. It's kind of like a set of china. You know, you have the whole set there and you break one plate. You broke the whole set. You've broke, broken it. So you say, hey, this is pretty depressing. <laughs> you got to go through this till you get to this last point. The consequence of our sin is death. Because of sin, of Adam's sin, and all the sins, and your sin, and we're going to get old, and we're going to die. That's true with everybody here. And if you hang around long enough, you're going to see it to be true. You get old, and you die. That's the consequence of sin. So this bleak picture brings us to our last point. We see what it shows us, the ten words about God, ten words about you, and ten words about Jesus Christ. And this is where it really gets good. <laughs> I mean, and, and I've, I've shared with you, Jesus Christ is all through the Old Testament. You, you know, it, sometimes you don't see it, but let's look at the, the verse here in, in 2024 um, and see if you can't see the forecast for the Messiah redemption. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice. On it, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. And I will come to you and bless you. you Follow that? Okay, build an altar, sacrifice the sheep, and I will come and bless you. So if we leap over into John 129, and John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that great? So God has not lowered the level of his holiness. Some people think, you know, God just kind of stoops down and kind of puts a little dirt on him and kind of be like us, you know, be like us. Be little... You know, have a little fun in life, God. You know, be, be a little so we can relate. No, he, he never lowers the standard of His perfection, never lowers it. But He, and He sees our plight, that, that we can't do anything about changing our problem. He sends His Son, Jesus. And what we learn about Christ as it unfolds in the New Testament. He is God. It's a mystery. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. You're never going to be able to figure everything out about God, hello? (laughs) But He is God. And He is man. He has come in flesh. And He lived among us. And He perfectly fulfilled the law. So, Father in Heaven is perfect. Jesus was perfect. Wow. He, He... He kept all the law. And here's what he said. I didn't come to do away with the law. I didn't come to abolish the law and say, oh, hey, we're under grace. Get rid of that law. No, I came to fulfill it. That's a bold statement. I came to fulfill it. I kept every part of that law. And so having done that, he laid down his life as the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb to die for you. If he had one sin in his life, he couldn't do it for you. But he was a perfect, spotless lamb that we read about in the Old Testament. That the blood was shed for you. And that dealt with your sin. It, his blood washed away all of your sin. Past, present, future, all of it. He says he separates it as far as the east is from the west. His blood defeats the power of sin, and his resurrection defeats the power of death. So we may physically die, but we have eternal life. We'll be given a new body. We'll live in heaven with him forever. This is what he does. And having done all that, so he comes to rescue. He lives a perfect life. He offers a perfect sacrifice with his blood to wash away your sins. He rises up from the dead and conquers death. And now he offers you the gift. He offers you the gift of eternal life and relationship with him. He offers it to you. He he doesn't force it on you. He doesn't say you have to. He doesn't just save everybody that doesn't want to be saved. He says, here it is. I'm offering my life. For you. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 13. It's all, it's all in the word. It's all in the word. And so we call on him and receive that free gift, and it changes our lives. So how does the law, having said all that, 10 words about God, He is holy, 10 words about me? I am not. In 10 words about Christ, he came to make me holy. So that, not I can, you know, be on the cover of a magazine how holy I am. No, he made me holy so that I can have a relationship with him. That's the purpose. That's the reason. Not that you can brag about your good life. It's all for relationship. So, how does the law affect me? And I think this, that the law, if if you don't understand the place and purpose of the law, it can really put you in bondage. And a lot of believers are in bondage. For example, people will say, I see the 10 Commandments as a checklist and every day I get up and check off the ones I kept. You'll find out by the end of the day you didn't keep any of them If, if you understand the heart. The deep level of this, and so if you're if you're doing a checklist, it can do a couple things. It can it can want to make you feel really proud about yourself, self-righteous. No one likes to be around self-righteous Christians. Well, you know I, I've have done pretty good, you know. So what you do is you have a false view of yourself, and you, and then you become a judge of everybody else. It didn't keep. They only kept six of them. This yesterday I kept nine of them so it makes you self-righteous. It can also really discourage people because if you set up 10 to check them off and you never get them checked off, I give up. And so this is how it can affect us if we use that as a checklist for, for the Christian life. I always uh, liken... When Jesus said, follow me, it's like you follow Jesus in relationship. On the road of life, you follow him. And there are two ditches. One is legalism, where I just keep all the laws, and he's going to be happy with me. Or the other one I call license. You know what? You say, I'm not under law, that Old Testament stuff. We're under grace, so I'm going to go do what I want to do. And if you start living the way you want to live, you're going to be in bondage too. So you have self-righteous bondage and you have self-indulgence bondage. And I find that being around college students and a lot of years that I've done around college students is that if you grow up in a really legalistic environment, you know, like your parents are just all about the law, about the law, you tend to when you get your freedom, just throw it all off and just go, hey, you know what? We're under grace. Live. It's time to party. And you have no regard for what God has said. And then others grow up in a re- very loose type of environment. They say, you know what, we just need some structure and some laws. So the purpose of the law, and Paul talks about this in Galatians, is he describes it as a schoolmaster. And that's not really like the teacher. It's, it's the uh, servant in the house that takes the kids to school. <laughs> so um, the kids get ready for school. Didn't you wish you had someone like that to help you get you to school? So, you know, get them all ready. And, and it's the job of the schoolmaster to take these kids, lead them along to school. The law leads you along to Christ. That's what it does. The point of it is to show you how holy God is, how unholy you are, how Christ is the answer. And it leads you to Christ. And the law is not for you to to follow, you know. Like if I check this off, I've I've heard really good Christian people, very famous preachers, much more famous um, than any of us here, say this. Well, the grace of God is given to the believer to help us keep the law, and therefore have a relationship with Christ. I want to scream. I think no it doesn't, he doesn't give you grace to keep the law to satisfy him, no. He gives you the law to point the way, to show you Christ, to lead you to Christ, and once you have Christ, you no longer need the law in that same way. Now, the law is absolutely consistent with Christ because he fulfilled it. So we don't throw out the law, it gives me insight. When I read the laws, like the Ten Commandments, I say, thank you God. Um, do not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that, but I have had some bad thoughts. You know, thank you, Jesus. You fulfilled all the law for me. You know, all the way through, it becomes a thank you. So the law makes us appreciate what's been given to us. It appreciates what Christ has done for us. It appreciates the holiness of God. And the reason why I obey and I do right, and I try as best as I can to live a holy life because I love the Lord. See, it all comes back because I love the Lord. And I'm thankful for what he did for me. And so as I walk with him, he's holy. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling in my life, but you know, I want to please my father. I want to please his son. And if I really love you the way he loved me, then those next six commands I say lord I haven't done that perfectly but you have I thank you for that too and I and I want to mirror that so the scriptures old testament and new reveal to us the character of god they reveal to us how we fall short and how christ is the way and the way that you live a life pleasing to god is just keeping step with christ you learn all about him through the scriptures. So the way we do this, the face to face, happens through relationship, not rules. Now I'm not saying you don't have rules in your home, rules for your kids. I didn't say what we call antinomian or lawlessness. No, 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 there there are rules, but no rule, keeping any rule will ever make you righteous. And that's what we're talking about here. So as we conclude, Where do the 10 words, 10 commandments take us? With God, we tremble before God's holiness. That's a good thing. We, and I hope we always do, we have a reverential awe and tremble over God's holiness. With us, we bow our knees in our sinfulness and unworthiness. And finally, with Christ, we raise our hands and thankfulness. This is how we live the Christian life. It's one big expression of gratitude. It's one big expression of, oh God, you're so good. And when you see the Ten Commandments in this light, it really sets you free. It doesn't put you in bondage, it sets you free. Isn't that beautiful? And my prayer is this, that what motivates us to live right is love. That's what he's saying. The greatest commandments: to love the Lord with all your heart. To love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you spend time in this book, this is why I constantly challenge, spend time in this book and you'll get to know him and you'll get to love him and you're going to want to walk with him. And he will speak to you and he will help you and he will guide you in that journey. Father in heaven, thank you so much for opening to us such a beautiful part of scripture. At first, we may just stay in our fear and trepidation, but when we realize that you never compromised your holiness, and you still loved us in our sinfulness, and you sent your Son, we express thankfulness. Oh Lord, we pray as we read here in this text, will you bless our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.